Thank you for joining us. I'm Garrett Graff. I'm the director of the Cyber Initiative at the Aspen Institute. And this session is part of a series of briefings on mis- and disinformation that the Aspen Institute is hosting in tandem with our Commission on Information Disorder. We're talking to top experts in the field who can help us make sense of the various facets of this information crisis in modern society. These briefings are designed as a resource for our commissioners and the broader public. We hope you find this series, which we're calling Disinfo Discussions, both useful and informative. In this episode, I'm speaking with Thomas Ridd, a political scientist and professor of strategic studies at Johns Hopkins University. He is one of the world's most renowned experts on disinformation and has a decade of experience in international security and intelligence studies. He previously served as a professor of security studies in the Department of War Studies at King's College London, where he developed a cybersecurity module that bridged the gap between technological and political debates. His book, Active Measures, The Secret History of Disinformation and Political Warfare, examines Russia's interference in the 2016 presidential election, as well as the history of, more broadly of disinformation as a political tool. It is one of the best primers that I've ever found of this moment and what got us here. Thomas, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me and thanks for this very generous introduction. <laughs> um, so I want to start really at the beginning of some of your work, um, that as much as we as a society have woken up in the last couple of years to the threat of disinformation as a political tool, as a tactic, it is neither new nor unique to the modern day. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the history of disinformation and uh, how it's come to be a tool for political warfare. Yeah. Um, so when I, uh, as many of us, uh, followed the 2016 election interference, really in real time, I very vividly remember the day when the Washington Post and CrowdStrike broke the news that uh, the DNC had been hacked. And then the next day, the leaking started. When, when that happened, I very quickly understood that I was not equipped uh, to understand the history of this type of activity, um, only the history of you know, hacking and some of the forensics, the digital forensics. But that wasn't enough to really understand the tradecraft on display. The deception, for example, on display. Uh, and of course, then I started immediately pretty much going back into that history. And that meant for me, I'm German, I'm German born, uh, although I haven't lived in that country for a while. That meant going back to my own history. Um, because, for example, so much of the best disinformation, the best deception that we've, I think, seen in the Cold War happened in Germany, because Stasi um, was you know so close to its target, spoke the same language, um, really understood the West German political scene and culture extremely well. And that equipped them to do some of the best information operations, active measures in the Cold War. But of course, you can take that story you know much further back. So I confronted this decision, when do I start my history? Because the start date that I chose, the 1920s and Operation Trust in... Uh, um, the very young Soviet Union then, that is, even that is an artificial start date because you could go, you know, way back into, into the uh, uh, 
19th century, you know, really all the way back to the Middle Ages. But of course, that would be a rather different undertaking. So I decided let's look at professional intelligence agencies in a in an environment that would be progressively, you know, dominated by telecommunications in the 20th uh, and then 21st century. And let me just make a big picture observation here. I think studying the tradecraft that intelligence agencies developed, not only KGB um, or GRU, but also CIA in the 50s, and I mentioned Stasi already. Studying this tradecraft and the way they began to understand how disinformation works, uh, that is really it's studying a metaphor, it's studying an analogy for really what is an epistemic crisis in our society today that in my mind really started to develop and to sh take shape in the 1970s. An epistemic crisis that you know we describe today with terms like fake news and disinformation, uh, misinformation sometimes, that really cuts quite deep and calls into question what we are as an open society. I know that, that just to sound philosophical here for a moment. And you really talk, uh, Thomas, about four distinct waves that you saw as you began to piece together that uh, uh, the history of sort of professional disinformation. Um, and, and I wonder if you could, for the commission, sort of walk through uh, those four waves, what makes them unique and sort of what lessons we have for today about those moments. Yeah, uh, thank you. Um, what, let me try to isolate sort of one specific feature that I think is not easily uh, uh, obvious when you read the book. Something that I sort of didn't really articulate in the book because the book is really a lot, a lot of show, don't tell. So let me extract some of the bigger themes. And what I find fascinating here is that if you are an, uh, an intelligence agency that has begun to invest resources into running active measures. Let's pause you for a second and, and ask what is an active measure and why are they calling it active measure, not just disinformation? Because it started out uh, as disinformation earlier in, uh, in the 20th century. Active measure is a really very useful term to understand what this is all about. Because the question is, how do you activate one of these measures? one of these deception operations. And the point here is that these measures are not about lying, they're not about fake news, they're not about disinformation as such. They're about activating an emotional reaction, activating a collective emotional reaction. So one of my favorite examples in the book is a KGB uh, campaign in the late 1950s that triggered anti-Semitic uh, incidents in West Germany and really all across Western Europe and even in the United States and Australia and South Africa and the West. Um, and the key here is that this was not fake. It was a fake anti-Semitic campaign, but the passions, the, the actual uh, hate crimes that were triggered by the campaign, they were obviously real because Germany 
it was obvious when you read the press in you know 1958 1957 before that happened actually had a real problem with anti-semitism this was only you know a little more than a decade after the holocaust and clearly anti-semitism wasn't completely didn't completely disappear immediately so the, the that new disinformation department sensed through people on the ground through people who understood german um, who reported back from germany that something offered itself an opportunity offered itself to design a wedge and then drive it into an existing crack in that society namely uh, a contradiction so to speak in their own language um, uh, the anti-semitic problem and so it's not fake what we're looking at is not forgeries although the initial smearings and you know writings on synagogues that said jews out juden raus in german they, they were fake because they were not committed by actual anti-semites right in fact some of them may have been hired uh, we don't exactly know how they uh, did all the specifics there but we have confidence high confidence that it actually was a campaign because so many defectors admitted to it afterwards the, this confronts us with an intellectual challenge that we can still uh, uh, rediscover today and that is that active measures will activate real emotional reactions real anti-semitic uh, reactions for example if you support the peace peace demonstrators anti-nuclear activists in the late 1970s or people who are really against enhanced ra radiation weapons you know the uh, um, the um, neutron bomb as the soviets called it there will be people who genuinely believe in the kind of information that a foreign entity will feed them and so what does that mean let's just really fully understand what that means it means that one if we study from the perspective of, a, of, a, of an intelligence agency that has learned how to exploit these weaknesses if we study how they do it then we gain really an interesting perspective on ourselves and our on our own problems so that's why i think the whole book is an interesting metaphor to really understand our epistemic crisis today even if there's no foreign interference in some of these instances that we are confronting today but it's also helpful to understand the the um the way these weaknesses are exploited because it really and this is profoundly important to understand the nature of disinformation it's not about false information you cannot just simply find techniques that will identify you know what is a forgery what is a modified picture what is a fake or a deep fake it's not a, that is not the problem the problem is that communities ultimately are pitched against each other that people who believe in something are pitched against people who believe something else for example people with a specific conspiracy theory in mind or worldview um are confronted and the confrontation with another group is is supposed to be enhanced here and there are many many examples from the cold war uh, of entities coming in from the outside and trying to uh, enhance um, amplify existing conflicts but the conflicts are real even if the tools that are used to amplify them are forgeries so you can't simply try to solve disinformation by discovering you know the truth versus the fake that is a rather naive 
and in my view, actually counterproductive take on disinformation because it distracts from the real issues at hand. I, I, I've heard uh, people say before, you know, that Vladimir Putin's strategy uh, is to exploit the seams in democracy. And, and it really sounds like that's what you're talking about, which is, you know, uh, Russia's success in 2016 was not about uh, delivering new things into our political environment. It was about exacerbating uh through real and fake narratives challenges and problems that already existed in american society yeah um you know one thing that i uh, in the book that i'm trying to show is the um what happened in 2016 didn't just happen out of the blue it has a long prehistory which i talk about but it also has a more recent immediate prehistory in uh, deception operations and you know fake front entities like for example, cyber caliphate is one of them that wasn't used in 2016, but was used in 2014, 2015, including against American targets and French targets and uh, others. GRU, the uh, uh, you know Russian military intelligence agency, had used an entire set of fake entities to drive real wedges to um, uh, to really deceive people in, in 2015 and 2014. I don't think we have paid enough attention on, on the prehistory of, of how they rediscovered some of that old tradecraft because they also had to rediscover it. Um, one of the really fascinating puzzles, the things that I was struggling with and to still struggle with uh, when I wrote the book was how did it, what happened in the context of intelligence tradecraft moving from a human human intelligence organization the first chief directorate of kgb which is now svr into units that are primarily technically focused which is what we see at gru today so in that shift from human intelligence units to technical units signals intelligence units if you like what happened how did the operations change and what are the implications and I think one interesting implication here is that the tradecraft today of many of these operations is actually really not very impressive. Meaning they are, uh, for example, let's look at larger leaks that we have examples of those leaks. In the 60s or 70s, you, when you wanted to drive one of those wedges, you really had to be very creative because you ultimately had to convince, you know, ideally very successful and, and and professional journalists because they had the megaphone, they could really blast the message out. But in 2016 and today, um, the people that you're trying to convince are not necessarily first the, journal, the journalists, but others who would then, who would go into the, into the leaks, report them out or find interesting tidbits and then create, create some of the value from the leak itself. And then, the story snowballs from there. So the value creation chain has, I think, changed in the 21st century, which really, uh, paradoxically, in my view, means that if you really want to be ready for disinformation in the 21st century, what we really have to study is some of the more impressive tradecraft in the 20th century. And, and what stands out to you, to, to you there? I mean, I, I think I thought it was so interesting in the book how you lay out, um, you know, how much 
disinformation has been changed by the internet. But I'm curious, you know, what stands out to you of what the lessons are that we should learn from the 20th century? Um, I think the most interesting historical work um, doesn't focus on what can be compared, what happened before. It focuses on the differences of where the comparison, the historical comparisons, or in some sometimes the analogies break down. It's where an, an analogy breaks down that we learn most, not where it actually works. So where does the historical analogy fail? Any historical analogy fail? What is really new, in other words, today that I struggle to find um, proper historical precedents for? And I think it is the a way that the internet has accelerated and enlarged the creation of conspiracy theories and the way in which conspiracy theory communities or conspiracy entrepreneurs interface with their own following. In my disinformation class that, I, that I've been teaching now for the second uh, year, this year we have several sessions on conspiracy theory and QAnon, which I'm not covering in the book. And these sessions are turn out to be just so fascinating because I think there is where we really struggle to understand what's going on. So let me take one quick historical anecdote example to sort of illustrate what I mean. Um, one of my students recently presented on the flat earth uh, belief, flat earth society on flat earthers. And that's that was a fascinating presentation because it helped us isolate uh, some of the key features of conspiracy theories. One of them is that they believe in this case, for example, in science, but they didn't believe in the institution of science. They believed in the scientific methodology. It was a completely, you know, a weird and, and twisted uh, methodology, of course, but kind of looked like science, but they didn't believe in the institution anymore, the scientists and peer reviews and whatnot. And I think what we're seeing today is something similar. You have people in the QAnon universe believing in doing their own research, believing in investigative techniques, believing in intel, but they don't believe the institution of intelligence, the intelligence community, the law enforcement community. So I think what looks like an epistemic crisis, really at closer inspection when we train our, our uh, analytic skills on it, uh, will really, uh, to a degree, reveal itself as an institutional crisis. Um, first and foremost, people lost trust in certain institutions. Uh, but of course, now they have the tools to really take this to a level that we haven't seen before, because now you can, you know, you can acquire this, the, the, the uh, twisted research techniques or the investigative techniques and build your own, almost like a, like a twisted video game, build your own world um, of, of, of beliefs that is completely disconnected but self-contained. And I don't think we as a society have really begun to understand this dynamic or how to fix it. Uh, and I wanna come back to that question of how to fix it in a minute here. Um, but, but you really make a strong case in your work about just how threatening the rise of disinformation is to open society. And, and I wonder if you could talk about for a minute or two sort of why you see that threat as so massive um, and, and also so unique to this particular moment uh, with the rise of the the internet and, and the information age? Yeah, that is a tough and, and, and great question that I 
really wrestled with for years now. Um, I think we cannot understand the challenge of disinformation, either through foreign intelligence agencies or through domestic um, cults, ultimately. We cannot understand that challenge without appreciating what these institutions, these epistemic institutions that I was referring to there are for. Why do we have science? Why do we have investigative journalists? Why do we have you know, peer review? Um, but also why do we have uh, transparent processes in which knowledge is confirmed or falsified? And we have it because that is what an open society is all about. We are able to resolve conflict based on agreement, um, and not based on fighting with each other violently. And ultimately, we are able to resolve conflict because we can agree on a shared uh, set of facts. And we have institution in if institutions in place that can verify what is a fact and what has been falsified. That's what I just described. But if we lose that ability to agree on those shared facts, then we ultimately lose the ability to resolve conflict peacefully. And so these institutions are ultimately the institutions of an open liberal democracy. Disinformation, however, is no historic coincidence that the intelligence agencies that really escalated the active measure of straightcraft uh, skill set toolbox are from societies that were not open democracies. Because ultimately, the professional organized capability to deceive and to lie, to run massive operations that, that are designed to pitch specific groups against each other, to activate emotional reactions. Um, and sometimes in really ugly ways, the anti-Semitic campaign is only one. There are also you know, blatantly racist campaigns that KGB ran in the 1960s, exploiting uh, real, obviously, race issues in this country in the United States. These operations are ultimately anti-democratic. They are, they are authoritarian at the core, which means one, we should not engage in it as an open society. It's a tough question where deception becomes anti-democratic. Fascinating conversation in my view. But also it means that if we view the history of foreign intelligence operations, that the history that I'm describing in active measures, then and we realize it's a, it's a history of anti-democratic intelligence tradecraft, um, then we can also more clearly see the really authoritarian forces that are raising its head and gathering force domestically in a, in a not in a top-down fashion, obviously, but often in a bottom-up uh, way. But that doesn't make them any less authoritarian. Yeah. Um, so I want to turn uh, for the last little bit of our conversation here to this question of how we fix this, um, you know, how, how we address this uh, as a, a country, uh, as policymakers in the, the government and the private sector. Um, and, and I wonder, as a starting point, uh, if you could talk about, you know, just your assessment of the modern threat landscape and where you see the biggest threats that policymakers should be trying to address, whether that's policymakers in government or policymakers, you know, inside tech companies or, or the private sector. Yeah. You know, we're looking at a very, very dynamic um, landscape, uh, the, the, the landscape in which 
disinformation grows and can be enhanced by external actors. So in 2020, um, I think it's, it was much harder in the context of the 2020 election. I mean, it was much harder to spot external attempts to interfere than it was in 2016, because obviously adversaries have learned their own lessons. That is one reason. The second one is even more profound, and that is that the uh, domestic organic uh, use of the same tactics by, by, I mean, I don't mean this as a political statement, but I think we see it more often on the on the right and the far right than on the left, uh, is, is making it extremely difficult to, 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 to clearly, you know, distinguish, distinguish between foreign interference and domestic uh, illiberalism, shall we say. So that is, in my view, the biggest challenge. Um, how do we confront illiberal tendencies at home without, and how do we also make it harder for adversaries to, to exploit these illiberal tendencies in our own societies? Um, as you think about um, what you would want to make sure that the commissioners understand as they begin work on tackling these issues, um, where do you think there are opportunities for policy change or uh, you know technical solutions, legislation, um, you know e education efforts? Like, where do you think? Uh, they should be looking for solutions and, and what might those solutions be as you have seen them? Yeah, so one, um, two problems just quickly. Uh, one is that the way Washington DC works, uh, and you, you, know, you know this better than I do really, is certain institutions that are dealing with national security have a built-in bias towards looking at foreign threats. They, they're, they're legal, they're historical and cultural reasons for, the, for this uh, situation, but they don't really want to look at domestic threats as much as they want to look at foreign threats. That I think is a very problematic situation and bias that I think we have to tackle as a community of um, practitioners and thinkers in the national security space. Because really, let's face it, the biggest problems for US national security today come from inside the, inside the country, not from abroad. Of course, foreign actors are still there, still some of them are you know, adversarial, and in fact may exploit some of these domestic forces. But in that interplay, I think is where the challenge lies. Um, that's one, and the other one is, in terms of you know, Russian disinformation is getting a lot of press, sometimes I think actually too much press here, has, really achieved a meta quality. <laughs> what do I mean by that? I mean that the conversation about Russian interference is more impactful than Russian interference in many cases. We've, we've reached that sort of constructivist nightmare. And it means that we have to be very, very careful when we name, when we, you know, for example, let's make, let's make an example. Suppose law enforcement, FBI, the FBI, would find some form of Russian role, Russian interference, Russian individuals participating, potentially with links to the intelligence community or something like that, participating in the January, January 6 um, insurrection, the, the storming of the Capitol. 
Or suppose we find some form of Russian interference in the early history of the QAnon conspiracy theory. There would be a lot of people who would immediately jump to the conclusion, just like happened in the Hunter Biden uh, leak case, that this is all a Russian, you know, Russian interference and it's all remote controlled and there, there they are again. That uh, tendency, which you find predominantly on the sort of center left, I would say, to blame problems on external interference, that in itself, I think, is, has, become, has become a problem. I hope that's not too, being too academic here, but I actually do think it's a serious issue. We should, we should really confront our own problems independently of whether an adversary is trying to exploit them or not. Yeah. Um, Thomas, anything uh, else that you think it would be important for the commission to be thinking about uh, either as a uh, policy problem or a potential policy solution um, as they head into this work? Yeah, if I may just briefly make a very abstract observation here, and that is the problem that I think we are touching, we're circling around here, is ultimately a problem that we and all liberal democracies right now will continue to confront for the foreseeable future. The commission is a you know very laudable initiative and, and I hope it makes a difference, but the problem will not go away. We should not have that expectation. The problem I think is a deep, fundamental problem that is created by, to a significant extent, modern technology, the internet, and the way it is used. Uh, COVID, to a degree, has made it worse, that trend, because it has isolated communities from each other and sent people inside online echo chambers even more than they already were. So that, that problem will absolutely not go away. So any attempt to solve it and move on will fail. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thomas Ridd, the author of Active Measures, The Secret History of Disinformation and Political Warfare, professor at Johns Hopkins. Really appreciate you sharing your wisdom with us uh, and helping the commission help to understand this problem as its work begins. Uh, and we'll look forward to talking with you more as the work unfolds. Thank you.